0: from a leader for a leader. Today on the podcast, Pastor Carrie Newhoff shares with us his thoughts on the crucial role of executive pastors, post-Christian America, and creating intentionally great workplace cultures. Informing, encouraging, and supporting your church. You're listening to the Excellence in Church Administration podcast from ECFA. Hey everyone, this is Michael Martin, and welcome back to another Excellence in Church Administration podcast. Well, today we get to listen into an insightful conversation that our very own Warren Byrd has with pastor, speaker, podcast host, blogger Carrie Newhoff. Carrie is a thought leader on, well, leaders. His podcast and blog at CarrieNewhoff.com are accessed by millions of leaders each year. So, without further ado, let's jump right into Warren and Carrie's conversation.
1: Before we talk about some of the disruptive trends you've noticed in 2019, let me get your take on executive pastors. Sure. We're recording this just before your keynote at the 2019 Ex Pastor Conference, and Ex Pastor is shorthand for executive pastors, right, not, not former pastors. Yes, not former pastors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I know many XPs are fans of your podcast. What do you love about XPs that prompted you to accept the invitation to speak here?
2: Well, us visionaries are doomed without them, I'll tell you that. (laughs) So in Les McEwen's sort of worldview, I'm a visionary. And a really great XP will have some currency with with vision, but they're really, uh, they're gonna be the operators. They're gonna be the people who like, I can turn your dream into a reality it's Paul Allen Bill Gates right you need you need those people because there's an awful lot it's rare to find a leader who who is really really good at vision like off the charts and also a really good implementer. And I, would, I wouldn't say I'm really great at vision, but that would be my, my key strength. And I struggle in operation. And I think for a lot of us who are in that lead seat, which is where I've spent most of the last 25, well, all of the last 25 years in the lead seat, uh, founding, pastor now, but then leading my own company. It's like, I know what needs to be done, but please don't ask me to do it.
1: <laughs> but, but yet, you were an attorney by background before yeah, yeah, that, yeah. and which, mean, which suggests
2: nuts and bolts and details. When, you know, how did you discover? That's a good question yeah so I was on the courtroom side I I was in the one year I spent in law I was in court almost every day and details matter a little bit but not really what really matters so my wife is also an attorney but she is a what we call in English common law a solicitor I'm a barrister I go to the bar not that bar but I go to court and she is a solicitor so she will draft your 700 page contract if she has to she did separation agreements for couples and I mean that is down to the dollar, and I'm like, dollar schmaller. Like I'm just gonna go before the judge and say, this is why my client needs custody. This is why, Your Honor, it's unjust to, you know. So it's really big ideas. That's and now you need the facts to support you, but you pick and choose the facts that work in your favor. Now I know that sounds unethical. People are gonna be like, oh, so unethical. I had that problem in first-year criminal law. So you wanna know my secret? <laughs> I, I went to my first-year criminal law prof at Osgood. And I said, I could never do criminal law. He's like, why? I said, because the guy, what if he says he's guilty? And he says, well, if he says he's guilty, you cannot then enter a plea that he's innocent because you're misleading the court. That's an ethical breach. I'm like, okay, problem one solved. (laughs) But of course, anybody who's done criminal law, and I haven't, but would tell you he's never met a guilty client, right? You come in. But I said, what if you know he's lying through his teeth? Or you don't know, but you're like, come on, dude. Like you are, you're, this isn't true. This isn't what happened. And he said, oh, you're confusing your role you think you're the judge. He says you're the defense attorney. And the system is set up so that he can have his day in court. And your job is on the merits of the case, based on the facts that we have, you give him his best day in court because The district attorney is gonna do the opposite on the other side, and he or she is gonna try to run them into the ground or you know, death penalty, or you get exiled to Mars or whatever. And then the judge has to decide. And once you know that, it solves your ethical problem. So translating that to ex-pastor. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Rabbit trail, rabbit trail. No, 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 no. This is good. That the executive
1: pastor needs to be able to say to the senior pastor, I can make that dream happen. Absolutely. And get the boundaries and the track to run on. And uh, and you discovered that you started in a in a small church, right. but at a certain point you had
2: to realize. I need somebody with more details. Well, for me, it happened around five or six hundred, okay. and I was like, "I'm I'm overwhelmed. I'm I'm not a good manager. I'm a visionary. I'm a communicator." And so my problem was, I manage self managed self-managed people really well, <laughs> and there's not a whole lot of self managed people out there. So I actually, there was a young woman, early 30s, who was an executive with Pepsi. And I just pulled her aside and I said, I got her involved in volunteer stuff. And I said, would you leave? And uh, she was our first executive pastor for about six years. And then I hired another guy who's now the lead pastor. And uh, it's, it's great. But, you know, the other, the other factor about ex-pastors, because they used to be associates, but associates weren't really... Associates, it would be like, you handle the Wednesday night service and take care of the Bible study, and I'll run the church. That's not really what an ex pastor does. An executive pastor is somebody who I think does an amazing job scaling and does all those logistics associated with scale and if you think about it the large organization is not that old when you look at the broad sweep of human history of thousands and thousands of years uh, multinational corporations are fairly new multi-site is very new um, large churches like in the 70s a church of 1500 was oh like inconceivable how do you have that many people in one building and so you didn't have problems of scale that you have now and so i think there's this whole industry so to speak or field that's been opened for people with that gifting who can go well I know how we can get to 10 campuses or I know how we can we can scale online and I know how we can structure the staff because the visionary communicator gift set usually doesn't also contain uh, those keys to scale It contains the frustration when it doesn't happen right the my gift has lots of frustration when things don't happen right but it's executive pastor that really makes it happen
1: so good so good one more framing question before we get to the disrupt or be disruptive angle. Yeah. Um, what are, what's one of the things that excites you the most about where the North American church is going? You rattled off before we went on air here. Yeah. People, You get to hang out with an, a lot of very
2: encouraging people and settings. What encourages you the most? Well, it's really interesting because I think you could look at it, I'll be contrarian, you could look at it as a very discouraging time. Churches are closing every day. Everything's changing. The culture is changing. America. I'm, I've been saying it for a few years, but I'm Canadian. That's my context. We've been post-Christian for a while, but I think you can literally see on the calendar America becoming more post-Christian day by day. Yeah, many people say that American
1: culture is about five to ten years behind Canadian culture. So one of the, I think one of the reasons your you have such an appeal is is people have this sense of, okay, Canadians have figured out how to do postmodern and today's reality a little bit better than we have.
2: At least some Canadians have. There's a lot of shoulder shrugs, I can tell you that. (laughs) It's like, well, I don't like where Ottawa's going. I don't like where Washington's going, but what are you gonna do, right? But the church never relied on Washington. The church never relied on Ottawa and the church never relied on Rome. Mm -hmm. It never did. The church was the church. And so you had horrible emperors and you had an abusive terrible culture and the church said we've got an alt kingdom here and that's what we're bringing about so i think that's where America's heading but i think what you see i was at dinner the other night with with reggie joiner who's a good friend and we got together and we were talking about the future and we were talking about how everything's changing. And the image I got that night, and I, I wanna write about this at some point, is like, you know in in the spring when the snow melts, if you're in a snow belt, you kinda have in a field just a whole lot of dead grass and dead or dying grass. And I think that's what the church feels like right now. But you also have, when the sun starts to warm up, the temperature goes up, all these little green shoots that start to pop up through the dead grass and I think that is a metaphor for what's happening in America right now. There's a lot of dying grass, there's a lot of wilted, uh, this thing isn't gonna make it, uh, but there are these little shoots. So you look at the church planters, you look at seminaries that are renewing themselves, you look at leadership as it's changing, you look at uh, how the congregation is really taking the place that organizations, institutions used to. Uh, Somebody pointed that out to me this week, it's like it used to be denominations or organizations or even parachurch would be the leader. Now it tends to be individual congregations that are really making a difference. And so I think what you're seeing is a lot of green shoots. And what fascinates me, and this is what I try to do, is like, okay, what does this shoot mean? How is this shoot related to this shoot? And and what other grass is withering and fading? And so I think we're in a in a... In a, in a in a a moment of tremendous rebirth, but sometimes it's hard to see the birth.
1: Mm, mm. And what grabs people just as much is the opposite side, the blogs like your five Mm. disruptive church trends that will rule 2019. Uh, And I loved your introductory statement that leaders who fail to navigate the disruptive trends happening in our culture won't be left with much to lead. So I want to start with your fifth trend. You will no longer be able to get away with a bad workplace culture. So first, maybe give a quick summary to anyone who, gasp, didn't read the blog. Mm -hmm. What, What do you mean by a bad workplace
2: culture? Well, it's fascinating because we have a couple of cultural trends happening right now where uh, a few things. Number one, the Me Too movement, which in many ways was very, very healthy. It just called out behaviors that should never have been present in the kingdom of God, let alone the world, but certainly the kingdom of God. Uh, And we're not not exactly past that, but I think it's redefined what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. And yes, it has its excesses. And yes, it can be punitive at times. But overall, if you're living a life according to Galatians 5, you're not going to have a problem with the Me Too movement. Like you're just not you're, you're just not you're not so I think that's been really helpful the other the other thing that's fascinating me and I'm thinking about it more and more all the time is how the workplace is changing so 15 years ago the biggest question is can this person be part-time let's say they want to be a parent at home with their kids and that was the big dilemma at work is like can this person be a part-time employee it's like well I guess you could do this part-time and then it was like can they work from home one day a week or remember telework <laughs> Can they do that? Well, now the gig economy is going to be a major, like 50% of the economy within a few years. I read a survey that said 72% of Gen Z want to work for themselves. Uh, in my experience, most of my team's millennial. I'm the very top end of Gen X, but most of my team's millennial. And I believe for years that millennials don't work for you. They work for themselves. So even if they're full-time employees at your company, your church, your organization, they work, they see like, I'm me, man. Right now, I'm lending myself to you. If you keep me engaged, if you keep me interested, I might be here for five years. And if you get boring, I'm moving on. And a lot of the moonlight, they have other things that they do, every, you know, young, young adults, young leaders, they have their own personal brand, they have their own blog, they have their own social account. So it's like, wow, that has changed a lot. So we've been saying for for a long time that 40 years at one company in the gold watch is dead, but it's changed even far more fundamentally than that. And so I think your secret sauce as a leader, and this gets to the positive thing and something I've been spending a lot of time on in the last six, seven years, is you have to create an intentionally great culture, because as, as other leaders have said, uh, people don't quit companies, they quit bosses, and I also believe they quit bad cultures. So when the culture is stale, when you live in cubicle world and it killed your soul, when there's laziness or a lack of accountability or where there's, there's a really low sense of mission, that's a problem. And what I had to realize, particularly when I moved out of the lead pastor seat into founding pastor, and then I started my own company and it really became a thing with the blog and the podcast. Now I have five staff and the whole deal. I just like it was different than being the church because the church's mission is eternal. It's been around for 2000 years. It'll be around long after you and I are gone. So we, you know, the, the church's mission was different. But when I'm starting my own company, Carrie Newhoff Communications, this idea that like nobody wants to work for me. Like I am not a a sufficient enough cause for someone else to roll out of bed and say I'm giving my life to this. And I really, really believe that. And pay can't solve that. Yes, you need to pay well, But, you know, people have left $200,000 a year jobs because they hate it and because they don't like the leader and they don't like the culture. And so I think one of my jobs is cultural architect. I think I have to create a culture that's compelling, that's fascinating. And so I've worked really hard with my team on mission, vision, and values. So for my, you know, our church is to create a church that unchurched people love to attend and Jeff Brody's leading that now, my company. The, the mission, I'm like, what is going to make my team roll out of bed and go, yes, I get to do this? Our goal is to help people thrive in life and leadership. And that's what we do. We produce resources that help people thrive spiritually, personally, and professionally. And then we've got values. like. Pursue health. Am I living in a way today that will help me thrive tomorrow? Err on the side of generosity. Am I living and leading generously? Surprise and amaze. Have I done what's expected and gone beyond? And those are values that they love and every day we get to live those out. And we're a remote culture so my whole team's virtual, so I can't, you know, I can't be in Tennessee, I can't be in Florida, I can't be in Nebraska, I can't be wherever my team is in California. Uh, but those values hold us together, and then we celebrate wins. And when you can create a culture like that, that becomes extremely attractive to people. So let's let's translate this to
1: stuff that's in the news. You and I talked about it just before uh, we went on the cut mm-hmm. the recorders on, um, and. And what's in the news today, if someone listens to it a year from now, probably there will yeah. be similar news.
2: Next pastor failed. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah.
1: And and let's talk about for the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. Mm-hmm. How can a board or, or the local church culture, Do accountability in a
2: way that's healthy and good for the leader's soul. I think there are checks and balances you have to put in place. Transparency is your friend when you're hiding secrets. That, that is a, a significant problem. So one of the things I did at Conexus, and I had argued for this before when I was in a denominational context, could never win the debate, but uh, third-party independent financial audit from one of the big accounting firms. And yes, it's gonna cost you five figures, <laughs> easy, Maybe six, depending on the size of your organization, your church. But that is so good because you know there, you reach a certain level of complexity, whether that's a million, two million, 20 million, where the average person doesn't understand the spreadsheet. Like I, I, I kind of did, but you don't really. You know, I don't have a two million dollar personal budget, so I'm not I'm not a whiz at that stuff. And then you get really smart people who can do that. Of course, you've got them on your staff. But to have a third party come in on a regular basis every year and do the three or four day or week long audit where they sit in your office and they go through everything and they verify because you may not even know. It may not be you as a senior leader, but there's somebody I've I've got lots of friends who have run companies. It's like, yeah, I got built out of a half million dollars and it happened five dollars at a time or fifty dollars at a time. But you want to make sure that there's integrity throughout the organization. Um, Another thing I would say is tone. Uh, so some of the scandals in the last five years have been leaders who are just abusive, like they're just bullies. They swear, they, they bully people, they, they don't want to be challenged. You create an environment. I don't know how you police against that other than if you're a board member, it is time to call out your pastor and, and do it lovingly. Like if that happened to me, and I, listen, I'm an Enneagram 8, so on my healthy days, I'm a nice person to be around. On on my unhealthy days, when I'm in an unhealthy moment, I can be a challenging person. Just ask my wife. And because we're the take charge, we're the challenger, we're the leaders. Who you know, as Ian Cron um, says, uh, we're the two hundred and forty volt. Current in a 110 volt world or whatever that is. Sorry, I know nothing about electricity, just so you know. Um but they know. They know. (laughs) They know, yeah, I know, I can tell. I'm like, was that volts or watts? I have no idea. Anyway. Um but the the I would hope my elders and my team would take me aside, and I know they would, because we've been together for a long time and they would say, What is going on? or that is unacceptable. Now you as a leader, see this is where I don't think governance can solve. Governance can't solve character issues. They can fire character issues, but they can't solve it. Like that is me on my knees before God. That is me saying, I need the Holy Spirit here because I'm looking at the fruits of the spirit in my life and they are from the other spirit. They are not from the Holy Spirit. So where there's discord and faction and jealousy and envy and anger and wrath, I mean, that is from the enemy. But we know what, when God shows up in my life, I know what it looks like. It looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. The, when those things are present, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is generally speaking, what your culture should be like behind closed doors and in public. And I think, you know, how do you govern that? I don't know, but I would hope, and, and it's happened, you know, where I'm not in a good place, where leaders will come to me and just go, What's going on? And so it starts with concern, it starts with love, and then if I'm like, screw you, then it's like, well, I guess we're gonna have to take some kind of action. Now, it's never come to that in my case, but. Um, if it did, I would hope that they would take action because the mission, particularly in the church, the mission is so much bigger than you. Like, this isn't yours. This is not your church. This is God's church. And it is ultimately, yeah, your name's going to go down in flames, but it's His name. Like, unchurched people roll their eyes and go, Told you. See, there's another one. And like, I don't want to be accountable for that. I don't want to be responsible. So I think you have that kind of dialogue. And then if you've really got a leader, and, and this is where I think the dilemma is born. The dilemma is, well, now we're 1500 people, or we're 15,000 people, or we're 40,000 people, or whatever the magic number is. And you're thinking no one can ever replace that person so we can't really challenge them you almost feel like you're in a a golden handcuffs type situation and it's like well that also as hard as that would be and i empathize with that that's faulty thinking
1: well and it's faulty thinking too in that you you're conveying to the person you're you're such an exception you're exceptional and then that feeds into the moral issue of of leaders who fall so often tell themselves, "Yes, but I'm the exception. I can, right. I can do that. The rules are written for everybody else, but I get to have a side door entry on it, which then leads to the moral failing."
2: Yes. So uh, of character or anything. Uh, else. I'll tell you what I learned 13 years ago in the biggest crisis in my leadership to date, and it wasn't more. I mean, I daily sins like everybody, but it wasn't. There was no affair. There was no fraud. There was no, But I hit burnout. And people had told me for years, so extrapolate to whatever, let's say there's a moral failure or somebody's flirting with somebody or whatever, you know, and people kept telling me all through my 30s, you're going to burn out, you're going to burn out. And I thought, no, I'm not. I'm smarter than that. I'm the exception. And then one day, literally, I can remember the day I woke up and it was like, oh my goodness, what just happened? And I wasn't well for months. And what I learned in that season is the rules never apply to you until they do. And when they do, it's so painful. So, you know, in the same way, if I'm carrying on an emotional affair with someone or I'm texting one too many times or I'm looking at stuff I shouldn't look, like the rules never apply to you until they do. And then as far too many leaders could tell you, whose names we all know, there was a day where all of a sudden the rules applied to them again. And so I just, I don't want to have, and you know what, if if you do, because there are unique challenges that come with your, your job, you shouldn't be hiding that like if you need to fly business class for what you do yeah you might not be putting that on your Instagram account but you're not hiding that like I flew business here all right why because I I burned out once man and uh, I will eat the difference if the client can't pay I will pay that out of my personal account And some people may say, well, pastor could never do it. And I always thought that until you end up, last year I flew about 120,000 miles. When you fly that many miles, and that's a measurable percentage of your life, and you have a responsibility to, you know, be present at this event I'm speaking at in an hour. And then I wanna be present for my wife when I get home and I wanna preach a really good message. So is that justification? I don't know whether that's justification, but at least it's not secret. Right, right. Do you know what I
0: mean? Well, hey, we don't want to cut this short as Carrie and Warren continue to flesh out pastor accountability from the board and being able to take criticism when it comes. But part two of Warren and Carrie's conversation is coming in the next episode, releasing in just two weeks, so you don't want to miss it. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, we'd love and greatly appreciate you rating our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Blessings on your leadership, and we look forward to being with you again soon for another Excellence in Church Administration podcast.